Hello, I'm Terry Schultz, and I am channeling Brussels. Getting newsmakers, movers, and shakers to lose the lingo, burst out of the Brussels bubble, and have real conversations about the critical foreign and security policies shaping our world. It's the rest of the story, beyond the few seconds of sound bites that make it into the news. This week's Channeling Brussels is brought to you by the Atlantic Council. The U.S. envoy for Ukraine negotiations, Kurt Volker, heads into his fourth meeting with Kremlin counterpart Vladislav Surkov Friday, trying to find a way forward for the nearly four-year conflict in eastern Ukraine. The negotiations have to take place in Dubai, as Surkov is on the European Union's blacklist for his role in the annexation of Crimea, and he can't enter EU territory. I spoke with Volker here in Brussels, where he's a well-known figure as the former U.S. ambassador to NATO. Since leaving that post, he helped start the McCain Institute for International Leadership in Washington, D.C., where he's the executive director. On his way to Dubai, Volker came to Brussels to meet NATO and EU officials before visiting Kiev and the front line in Donbass. He wasn't very optimistic for a breakthrough. After all, he told me, the Russians still deny to his face that they even have military personnel in eastern Ukraine. So that's a pretty difficult starting point for getting them out of there. But Volker pointed out, there are people dying in this standoff every day, even though that doesn't make it into the news. And he won't give up trying to make peace. This will be my fourth time meeting with Vladislav Surkov, uh, who was designated by uh, Russia to be a point of contact for negotiating about uh, trying to bring about peace and a resolution in eastern Ukraine. And um, just to get a sense of what it's like when you have these meetings, do you feel like they want to resolve Ukraine? Well, we had some ups and downs over the course of six months here. Uh, we had some early indications that they were indeed serious about looking for a way to end the conflict, to pull their forces out, to uh, give a jump start to the Minsk agreements, because um, right now the situation is the Russians say they, uh, they need to see Ukraine take political steps. The Ukrainians say that Russia needs to create an environment that where there can be security, because right now it's... There's no ceasefire for real. There's, there's no withdrawal of heavy weapons. And so it's just been stuck. And the idea that we've discussed is putting in a peacekeeping force that would replace the Russian forces, maintain security, and buy time and space where Ukraine could then implement its share of the Minsk agreements. Um, after a few meetings where we explored that, uh, I think Russia kind of went back to its original proposal of a protection force which is really just about protecting the OSCE monitors, no control of security throughout the entire area, no containment of heavy weapons, and no control of the border, so that Russia controls both sides of the border and there's just free movement of people and equipment from Russia into these occupied territories and back again. Well, I'll definitely get into the nitty-gritty on Minsk and also on the peacekeeping proposal and on the OSCE monitoring mission. But to start off with, Ukraine passed this new law last week which defined Russia as the aggressor. And now Russia says that this heralds a new escalation, that now they believe that things are going to get worse. So you're heading into these talks perhaps at a worse time. Do you think that this is going to be, that there will be more um, pessimism about whether this can be, um, whether this can be resolved? Well, I would say we've already seen an escalation in fighting over the past uh, month or so, six weeks. And we've already seen a great deal of pessimism because there's been no movement by Russia towards actually ending the conflict. In fact, they withdrew their military officers from the consultative body aimed at reinforcing the ceasefire and, and sharing information about what needs to be done on that. 
There have been multiple contacts in the Normandy format and uh, no progress there either. So I'd say we've already seen those effects. What the Ukrainian parliament did, I think, is recognize the reality that this is what's happened. Uh, I don't think it heralds or indicates any kind of escalation. On their part. But uh, if Russia on, says it does, that doesn't mean they won't But the, again, my that. point is that they've already done it. So what, what's new? Um, but mil you think militarily that they will build up more? I mean, if that's what they're if that's what they're talking about as an escalation on Ukraine's side. I think what Russia is, is trying to do is uh, go back to a mode of camouflaging its own role and urging Ukraine and urging the international community to deal with the proxy governments that were set up by the Russians, the Luhansk People's Republic and the Donetsk People's Republic. Clearly, uh, there, are, there are whole creations uh, by Russia in establishing this conflict and, and taking over this territory. And I don't think any of us uh, are going to be doing anything to legitimize their role. They, they shouldn't be there. According to the Minsk agreements, uh, there needs to be uh, security, ceasefire, withdrawal of heavy weapons. There needs to be elections, and those elections are for the legitimate local authorities that exist. Mayors of towns, city uh, councils and oblast councils, things like that. If, if they're talking in this way, does that nonetheless make you nervous, even if you think there's already been a, a pre-escalation to this point? Well, this is the thing, is that Russia says things like that in order to try to cow others into not doing things. And so it's natural that that's what they say. I think what Russia does, however, in reality, is it looks at the situation on the ground. Um, there is no change in that situation. Russia controls the line of conflict. They control the border between Russia and Ukraine. Um, they are manning, equipping, training, controlling, commanding the forces that are there. And they, they ratchet up the levels of violence as, uh, as they wish. And we saw a significant escalation in violence in December. They can also ratchet it down, as we saw during the ceasefire improvements that took place in September, the so-called back-to-school back to ceasefire. Yeah. Right. Or in Which December, the so-called Christmas ceasefire, there was a week or so. Yeah. Uh, so they, can, they have the ability to do that. It's very um, interesting when um, the president of the Luhansk People's Republic, this, this entity created by the Russians, was pushed out in a, in a de facto coup by, by forces there. Allegedly, he was elected, but there was no claim to any democratic change here. He was just pushed out. Somebody else was put in place. Um, but at the same time that, that happened, the number of ceasefire violations went down dramatically because all the forces that had been regularly shelling across the border to the Ukrainian-controlled territory were involved in this little episode. <clears throat> you said there, there's been no change in situation on the ground except as Russia ratchets up or down. But now with uh, the U.S., commitment to provide more weapons, lethal weapons, to Ukraine, um, there could be a situation, a change in situation on the ground. How much do you talk about that? How much is that within your brief to talk about when you go there? Mm -hmm. It's something the Europeans are very worried about. Well, first off, let's, let's be clear what the U.S. decided. The U.S. Uh, decided to lift the Obama-era restrictions on assistance to Ukraine. Uh, the U.S. has defense relationships and provides arms and arms sales. Um, to many countries all over the world. Uh, Ukraine happens to be defending its territory inside its own territory, losing soldiers' lives every week, and there are some gaps in their defense capabilities. They make a lot of armaments, but they don't make everything. One of the areas of gaps uh, was in anti-tank weapons, um, and the U.S. does make the best in class of anti-tank weapons. 
Now, that is not going to lead to any kind of military escalation. What it could do, however, is if Russia were to contemplate further inroads into Ukraine, that it would be more costly to do so. Ukraine would have the ability to strike against some of those tanks. For the Russians, it would be more costly. Yeah. So it's, it's basically aimed at deterring an escalation of the conflict. Mm, but many people say it won't do that, that, it, that, that no more weapons are needed, and that's not what's needed to resolve this conflict. Well, many people say a lot of things. <laughs> that's uh, true. But the fact is that Ukraine is uh, defending itself against aggression on its own territory, and that has not fully stabilized, and the risks of uh, Russia making further inroads are real. And this just helps increase the cost of Russia even contemplating that. You think it will be a deterrent? I think so, yeah. I don't think it's going to... It hasn't led to any uh, additional escalation after the announcement. I don't expect that it would. We face a more bigger... We face a bigger and more structural problem here, which is that Russia has uh, gone into eastern Ukraine. It's created these proxy entities. It is arming, training, equipping those. effectively occupies the territory and keeps up a low level of conflict with Ukraine. Uh, that's been going on for three years. Uh, all of the things that people have tried to do, ceasefire, withdrawal of heavy weapons, Minsk agreements, Normandy process, all of these things, haven't really changed the fundamentals. In order to change the fundamentals, you have to have Russia come to the conclusion that it wants to stop this, uh, that, it, some, that it now sees that its own actions have produced the opposite of what it wanted. It, it, if it wanted to have a Ukraine that was more pro-Russian and in Russia's orbit, it has actually produced a more nationalist, more unified, more pro-Western Ukraine than ever existed, and particularly in a younger generation that is becoming locked in. So I think what Russia has done is damage its own interests or what it was trying to do. And that does create the possibility that maybe we could agree on actually ending the conflict and moving on. Oh, so you tell <clears> the <throat> Russians, look, it's not working, why don't you just leave? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and of course, the Russians say that, they're, that they are actually not there, that these groups have legitimacy. They still tell you that, that they, they're not there. Uh, yes, that is the Russian line, and so you, you, know, you listen to it. But you hope that between these exchanges, people in the privacy of their own thoughts are making judgments, what can we actually do? Um, we, we have nothing in a good spot with Russia at the moment, and it would be nice if we could find something that was working. And it would be really important for the people of Ukraine, because this is a conflict that has gone on far too long. Over 10,000 people have been killed. Ukrainian soldiers are victims of fighting every week. I think the average is about three per week. Uh, it's really terrible, and it should end. We haven't fundamentally changed the situation, and that's what's very frustrating. Um, this ought to be changed. And I think Russia, um, right now, I think we're, we're in a phase where we're not seeing any movement at all. I think Russia needs to reflect on whether this is really serving Russia's interests or not. Um, do you think, though, that um, also we here in Europe are not paying enough attention? I mean, do we need to also look at, at, at what, what's going on here and saying that's not working? Yeah, I do think that uh, there should be a greater sense of urgency. And a, and a greater demand on Russia to really bring this to an end. Um, no one is going to accept the change of borders by force. No one is going to accept these proxy entities having been set up there. And Russia pushing them forward because they want to doesn't make them legitimate. Uh, Russia really does exercise command and control of what is happening in the East. 
So it is a responsibility that they have for the, the loss of life and the conflict that's ongoing. And even uh, simple things like water and heat uh, in the middle of winter, these are things that are at risk because well, of the There are plenty of places that, that haven't on. had them in, in, in years, consistently. Well, I, I wouldn't say that. I think that consistently, the, perhaps. People do get access, then it gets shut off, and then they get access again. But, for instance, there's a water filtration plant outside of Donetsk. There has been shelling near it. There are heavy weapons parked right next to it. And if anything were to happen to that, it would affect the water supplies on both sides of the line of conflict. And because of some of the chemicals that are stored there, it could even uh, create a, a poison cloud. Uh, so it would be very, very damaging if that were to be hit. Um, similarly, uh, people are um, you know, run down, if you will, in terms of getting access to basic goods, having to cross the conflict line to go shopping or get their pensions. In huge um, lines, you see them waiting yeah, in lines. And it's really, uh, it's really a shame. There's no need for it. But what can what can be done if you if you want you want Europe and Washington too to do more? What I mean, what's well, your I think we need to um, keep increasing the costs. Um, that no one's going to accept an occupied territory here, another long-term conflict, and the costs of maintaining that will continue to escalate, including sanctions, uh, including support for Ukraine overall. Uh, including Russia is currently paying a lot of civil administration costs and the cost of its military operations. Um, but evidently maybe they hasn't risen steep enough. Maybe they can afford it, but it is an unnecessary cost and it's not producing any good. But they don't seem they don't seem pressed to to change the situation, do they? I mean, I think um, there there is a bit of a pause right now. For anyone can speculate on the reasons why that will be. Um, I'm hoping that when I meet my Russian counterpart that there will be some new thinking, that there will be a, a fresh approach, but I'm, I'm not optimistic at the moment. Uh, you say that nobody will accept the changing of borders. Um, don't you think that nobody can move it back either? Well, you know, you know the Baltic states very well, uh, and it, we went a, a very long yeah, time not accepting their incorporation in the Soviet Union, and we didn't bring about immediate change, but we also didn't accept it. And I think that was the right policy to strike for a long period of time. They were different populations than the Crimean population. You know, people say, oh, the Crimeans must be so happy that they're part of Russia again. And that's I certainly really, wasn't implying that. <laughs> that is not the case. And uh, there are lots of reports, uh, both you know, people who were the leaders of the local assembly that were detained for a long time. And there are you know, other arrests of people who simply because they don't agree, because they, they express a different point of view, are then charged uh, with uh, treason or with traitorous acts and, um, and are really victims of human rights abuses there. Well, let me get a few more details on um, the peacekeeping option, because I think that was something that, as you, as you mentioned, Russia brought up as if it would be a solution, but it, what, their concept of what the peacekeeping force should look like was not yours or the UN's or anybody else's. I think everybody remembers UNPROFOR uh, in Bosnia. This was the, I would, I would say, essentially a failed peacekeeping effort because it didn't control area security. It didn't provide for the containment of heavy weapons. Um, the you know, UNPROFOR was there watching when Srebrenica happened. And it was a catastrophe. And no one wants to be in that situation again. Uh, so when Russia proposes a protection force for the monitors that nonetheless still has to deal with the proxy militias that are there, no 
country that would send forces to become part of a peacekeeping force would accept those circumstances. Uh, it, you know, they all, everyone remembers that experience with Bosnia. No one will do it again. It needs to have legitimate authority to control security in the area. It needs to be able to control, control the Ukrainian side of the Ukraine-Russia border. And that doesn't mean closing the border. There needs to be exchange of goods and trade and movement of people and all that. But it means preventing the movement of arms and troops, which is what's happening now. But and, and has it basically been shut down now because Russia doesn't agree to what everyone else um, conceives well, of? Well, we are in this, this stalemate in discussions where Russia is insisting on its original concept of this protection force, which no one else, you know, France, Germany, U.S., anyone, um, thinks makes any sense. It would not work. Because the monitors right. need protection from the Russian-backed forces. Well... The Russians are arguing that a UN force would pr protect those monitors. But the problem is that they're protecting them from forces that Russia controls. Right. There's no need for that. And it is legitimizing the presence and, in fact, negotiating that presence with those forces that Russia controls, with Russia pretending that it's not there. Uh, that's just an untenable formula. Well, is this still something that you're going to push for? Well, it's something that I think we are putting on the table uh, and I say it, uh, a legitimate, genuine peacekeeping force that controls security in the area. Uh, we are putting it on the table, and we are prepared to follow through. If Russia wants a solution, this would be a solution, and we're prepared to do our part to make it happen. And you think that they are tiring, getting fatigued, losing too much money, and, and they may be looking for a way out like this? How would uh, they say face on this? I think everything about that is true except for the decision-making. Uh, thus far, there's been no decision made to get out. But I think uh, everyone can see it's not working. Um, when you look at, at, um, at Minsk, um, the OSCE says over and over, nothing about Minsk is reality. Ceasefire on paper only because right. there are so many violations. So why do we even pretend that there's a Minsk agreement if... Well, if no, it's necessary, though. It. It's necessary because it, it includes all the ingredients. Ceasefire, withdrawal of heavy weapons, elections, amnesty, special status for the territory. There have been some exchanges of prisoners. Of the border, that have, that's exchange been, of prisoners, yeah. exactly. And then ultimately the restoration of Ukraine's sovereignty. So all of that's in Minsk. The problem is there's just finger pointing uh, over who's to, at fault for not implementing it. The Russians blame the Ukrainians for not doing the political steps. The Ukrainians, I think, quite legitimately say, how can they when they can't even access the territory? How, for instance, could you hold local elections when the area is controlled by illegitimate armed groups? Uh, there's no way you can hold an election in those circumstances. But the Ukrainians aren't blameless either. I mean, the heavy weapons also, I read the, the oh, yes. OSCE reports, they haven't been withdrawn from the Ukrainian side either. And again, they may say, how can we when we've got That's right. There is the no border, trust but... on either side. No trust on either side. That's again why putting in place a genuine peacekeeping force would be a good idea, because it the two sides don't have to trust each other. They just have to trust that international community force, a UN-mandated force, would create the space where you would have um, the opportunity to see elections, to see amnesty, to see special status, where there would be then a containment of heavy weapons, ceasefire should then genuinely take hold. That's what one would hope to see. But that requires Russia to agree to that kind of peacekeeping force. Are there any other working ideas on the table? Well, the Normandy format, which the French and Germans lead, and that's France, Germany, Ukraine, and Russia, mm 
uh, focuses on a number of specifics that are hotspots or uh, areas where they want to focus on establishing a ceasefire in a particular place along this line of conflict uh, on particular heavy weapons that should be moved, on the opening of border crossing points, on the detainee exchange as well. Uh, so they focus on specifics like that to see if, whether they can get any movement, and if so, maybe build on that. Uh, that is another approach. It could be, it could be productive, but it ends up being used by Russia instead to create multiple loops where this doesn't get done. It creates another reason to, to complain about something else, and then it creates a moral equivalence on paper with Ukraine needing to do something in exchange for Russia doing something. And uh, it, it, it has served really to, to blur the issues a little bit. But we need the Normandy process and we need the Minsk agreements if there is the political will to actually make a difference. Because if Russia does want to resolve this, if they do want to get out, if they do want to see the territory restored, if they do want to see peace, then we need those formats as a way to then execute it. Is there still worry in Washington that the Europeans could be divided, that... Um that sanctions won't be held up and that they'll lose their will on Ukraine? No, there's really not that uh, fear right now. I think what's happened in Europe is the impact of the sanctions has largely been absorbed and the continuation of them doesn't create new impact. And so businesses right. are not clamoring the way they were when they were having to shut down relationships. Now it's pretty stable and these things do get rolled over fairly routinely every six months now. You know, we shouldn't forget that the criteria for lifting sanctions is the implementation of the Minsk agreements. The U.S. is in the same position. We would be prepared to uh, go to Congress and argue for the lifting of these sanctions that are imposed because of Minsk if it was implemented. But the fact is it's not being implemented. Um, speaking of Congress and so on, um, how many questions do you get about what's happening back in Washington? It's you know, sometimes people ask questions, but it's very easy to answer. Um, in the case of Ukraine and, uh, you know, negotiations over settlements, uh, support for Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity, support for peace, demands for reform and fighting corruption inside Ukraine, there is unanimity within the U.S. government. Uh, uh, and I've had the opportunity over the course of the last several months, I've I had the opportunity to speak with the president um, in briefing him and then taking part in his meeting with President Poroshenko in September, certainly Secretary Tillerson, Secretary Mattis, General McMaster, and so on. There, there's not a shred of daylight over the, the principles here. Uh, we want to see Ukraine's territory restored. We want to see peace. Uh, we are willing to take steps such as supporting a peacekeeping force to make that happen. And Ukraine does need to do its share, both on Minsk and on reforms and fighting corruption. And as much as people may get um, distracted or anxious about where U.S. policy is going because of all the noise, at least on these policies, it's very clear and very easy to explain. Uh, but do, do, do your interlocutors, both in Europe and and in Ukraine and possibly in Russia worry that um, there are some zero-sum elements to Russia policy? You know, people worry about everything. Everybody worries about things, but I just don't see it. Uh, I think that here uh, we've been very, very conscientious to be working closely with Ukraine, working closely with France and Germany that run the Normandy process, 
uh, working closely with other allies as well. Uh, I was in London last week and always in close touch with the Canadian Foreign Minister. I'm going to have meetings at NATO and the EU this week, all just to stay coordinated. We're not even making you know big muscle movements right now, but it's important that we stay connected with our allies because that that unity of effort is is part of what we need to demonstrate. What are the questions that you get from from NATO and the EU? What are they? What do they want to know from you? Because you're you're on the front line of the negotiations. Um, I would say more succinctly than a yeah. Normandy meeting or I think um, meeting. Honestly, I think uh, a number of countries don't get good granular firsthand information mm -hmm. about what's happening. And so it is a little bit blurry for them. And maybe there is some kind of perceived moral equivalence that Ukraine and Russia, they're, you know, pox on both their houses. And it does need a little explaining to say, let's remember how this got started here. Remember the little green men? Remember we were talking about that? Remember there was no violence going on whatsoever in eastern Ukraine? And then all of a sudden these people show up and then you start having a conflict. Remember there was no such thing as Luhansk or Donetsk People's Republics? And remember that Russian-speaking people are safe and working and prosperous all over Ukraine. They live normally, normal lives all over, except where this conflict has been imposed on the territory of Ukraine. So I think explaining some of those things kind of reminds people, oh yeah, that's how we got into this. Yeah, there is a problem here. Well, NATO undertook its biggest reformation since the Cold War because of, because of the 2014 actions of Russia. Um, because of Crimea, how can they forget? Well, um, I think when it dips down below the headlines, um, which is way too often, these which days, is way isn't too it? often, because it again, people are suffering there every, every day. day. Mm -hmm. um, but it does dip below the headlines, and people focus on other things. There's all the domestic political sports that we all have, and then there's North Korea, and then there's the Iran nuclear deal, and there's terrorism and ISIS in Syria, and people just lose track and, and they, they move on. And I do think it's important to remind, how did we get where we are? What is the right outcome here? How do we need to stand up for the right outcome? And then how do we try to demonstrate our resolve to bring that about? I think everybody's happy you have that job. <laughs> Nobody, nobody's uh, <laughs> nobody's kind fighting of you, you say, for it. It's kind of you to say. <laughs> I do think it's important for the United States to be very actively involved in this. I think we do bring something additional to the table, particularly in the dialogue with Russia, and I hope that that makes a difference. Thus far, um, I'm pleased that we have a good U.S. policy and we have a good alignment with France and Germany and our other allies. Um, but I wish we had made more progress on the ground, which we frankly haven't done to this point. How long can you do this? How long can you take it? As long as necessary. Um, we've, we've got to stay focused on actually solving the problem. And you, you will do this? Well, I have a lot of time. Um, <laughs> um, this is a voluntary capacity for me. There are rules about being a special government employee that I adhere to, but that gives me a lot of flexibility as well, too, as to how much time I can devote to this. And do you actually think that we will ever see Crimea returned to Ukrainian sovereign territory? Uh, I would say it this way. We can't accept that Russia goes in, takes the territory by force, and then claims to have annexed it and says, okay, we're done. Um, we can't accept that. Europe can't accept that. Ukraine can't accept that. Um, that, is, that is just not something that we can countenance. Um, in Europe of the 21st century. That doesn't mean we can get it back. Uh, I think what we have to do is set in place the right policies and the right perspectives 
and work over time, and we'll see what happens. But we can't, we can't just sit here and say, oh, well, that's too bad. Uh, not at all. Just like with the Baltic states, we have to proactively say, unacceptable, we're not going to buy it. All right, Kurt, thank you very much. All right, thank you. That's the U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine negotiations, Kurt Volker, who spoke to me on his way to Dubai for the fourth round of talks with the Russian side seeking peace in eastern Ukraine. It will take all the considerable talents of this former NATO ambassador. I wish him well and thank him for spending time with Channeling Brussels. Thanks also to the Atlantic Council for sponsoring the show. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Terry Schultz. See you next time. <laughs>